Hello, you're very welcome to episode 112 of FNI Rap Chat. Um, so yeah, we've had a really busy couple of weeks uh, with new hosts and lots of new podcasts coming out. So watch this space. Um, we had the first episode with Sean T. O'Malley interviewing uh, Dermot Goggins, who directed Bulletproof 2, uh, amongst many other uh, projects such as Silent Witness and uh, Red Rock before that, now mainly based in the UK. as uh, brilliant interview. Um, Dermot was very generous with uh, sharing information and advice, uh, so it's definitely worth checking out his, his uh, social media pages uh he's quite unique in that regard and uh yeah before the week before that we had michael smiley if you haven't listened to that one put it on it's uh it'll make you smile it's uh uh he's a very funny inspirational character and uh yeah we absolutely loved chatting to him um so yeah in the next couple of weeks we have an fni event at home uh uh so the first hour it's on the 29th first hour we're going to be doing a screenwriting and team building discussion with Colin McKeown and then from eight o'clock we're going to have Lisa Barras de Sa and Glenn Laburn um, Belfast based filmmakers husband and wife team and uh, they are brilliant filmmakers um, many people would have seen Cherry Bomb and Good Vibrations and most recently or- Ordinary Love and there's nothing ordinary about that film, as they say. It's a, uh, it's brilliant, um, really tender, amazing film. So we're, we can't wait to have them on. Uh, with someone we've been hoping to get on for a good while. So, uh, tune into that on the 29th. And today, uh, I had a lovely conversation with Paddy Brannock over Skype this week. Uh, so yeah, we're still doing a bit of a mix of the both, and uh, we're kind of still trying to grab. Uh, busy, busy, busy filmmakers. Why we can, and uh, if it has to be on Skype, so be it. But um, this is a, a really brilliant conversation. Um, Paddy has been working, making film, Irish films for twenty five odd years, and uh, yeah, many huge fans of films like I Went Down and uh, Man by Dog, and um, more recently. Eva and Rosie and uh, I've never really <laughs> had a conversation like this is a really interesting uh, way of talking about directing and um, really insightful uh, and uh, I think filmmakers will get a lot out of this one so we'll see you on the 29th and uh, yeah let's go to Paddy Brown. Paddy Braddock, thanks a mil for joining us on the podcast today. You're great to be here. Um, how was your COVID lockdown? Did you find any positives in it? Um, it in in some ways, it didn't. Uh, like I've young children and I work from home, so in a way, a lot, you know, a lot of it just was the same. Um, I think, I suppose. And there was a calmness around a lot of it, which was nice, and a quietness around the streets and all that, which was, was in some ways was nice. 
I think the absence of news, the absence of sort of a prospect of something or a possibility of something, I think was what affected me. And I think a lot of people probably, you know, where you, you just that little bit of something where the random thing or even the little thing, oh, great, I'm going on a, I'm going to, on a trip there or going to meet somebody today. And that little element of your daily life that gives you some trigger, let's say, you know. So I missed that. But it wasn't, I mean, Jesus, if this is, like, if this is the worst it can be, it's, you can manage it, you know what I mean? Uh, Whereas you look at some places and, uh, you know, where, where there isn't any sense of leadership or cohesion or something, you know, and uh, I'd say it could be very depressing to be in that if you were aware at all, you know? Yeah, I guess the difference here, you always kind of got had the sense that this would end, that, you know, we would d- go through this and, uh, you know, we'd we'd hopefully come, come out the other end, whereas, like, it must be incredibly bleak being in America at the moment. Yeah, it's in America and Brazil where, yeah. you know... Where nothing means anything, where facts or science or anything, even if you know it's true or you believe it, it doesn't necessarily, it's not going to register anywhere, you know, um, and that's that's tough, you know, um, like a couple of Brazilian friends and their family and, you know, just the idea of not being able to visit um uh and maybe for the foreseeable future and also at the same time being worried about uh family uh, over there you know is really tough but yeah. should we i mean we're still you know it's uh we're still in the midst really in many yeah. ways so yeah uh, be interesting you know um but watching your films and loving your films since i was a young fella and um kind of looking at your imdb you kind of can see kind of a consistency there you've you've worked quite consistently generally every couple of years you have a film which is quite rare how how did you kind of manage that um oh i suppose in some ways you know um there's definitely longevity there you know and you know i, I probably have done a film every two or three years bar a gap after i did a a horror film called Red Mist. Um, and I think it was like, maybe that was 08 and it was 14 when I did Viva. So there's a good gap there. Yeah. And it was a sort of, I suppose it was a kind of, at that stage, for various reasons, there was some changes going on in how I was organised. You know, I used to be involved in a production company and I then I got out of that. And, um and also, I sort of needed to kind of recalibrate a little bit. I felt maybe I'd sort of lost track a little bit in terms of what it was I wanted to, types of films I wanted to do and what was important to me. So I sort of lost track a little bit. So I spent a bit of time recalibrating myself, I suppose, and getting back into this a space that I, uh, I wanted to be in. You know? um, yeah. And before that, I suppose, you know, sometimes it's about timing you know when i when i made my first film um i was it was probably a good time and the second film went along with that maybe you know in in terms of that there was a development here there was a hunger here but there hadn't been the capacity or the 
the means to, by which to make films. And um, so I managed to make those first couple of films while being kind of a bit naive and raw in some ways. Um, I don't mean without intention. I had a, a sort of cl clarity and a conviction, but maybe, you know, there wasn't a huge amount of received wisdom around and, and uh, you were, there was an element of everyone was was learning on the job, you know? Um, yeah. So, and I was lucky that the energy of that period, both in terms of the film industry and maybe in a br broader sense, the Irish economy, and there was a sense of self-belief and everything um, pushed people on. And so I got beyond making the first one, you know, and I think that's the most important thing, because like, say, if I made, you know, Ailsa got some great critical reaction at the time and it won some prizes, um, but it was a, would have been a hard sell, you know, and, uh, you know, I think if I made that film now, it would be harder to go to the funders of Screen Ireland and something that might say, you know, well, it didn't really, you know, be a few prizes, but really, you know, do we want to fund another one of those or whatever? Uh, and um, I mean, maybe they wouldn't, I don't know. Uh, but I, th I think being able to make your second one and then I went down, definitely got traction. And it sort of let me spread a little bit, let's say, in, ter in terms of where I might sit. Um, so I, then I got the, a chance to make others. Because I think that first thing, and I'd say it's, maybe it's tougher now, you know, trying to make a film that you have a conviction about and a belief in, and is particularly a first film, but yet also something that lets you uh, still have a pathway to do the second one, you know? Maybe it's a bit more unforgiving now. Yeah. Yeah, because sometimes there's kind of a, a thing now where people only want directors to do certain genres and things like that. Yeah. No, definitely. And I, I at the time, for I think a couple of reasons, there was, I mean, there were filmmakers like Danny Boyle had kind of started making films. Maybe he'd been doing TV, but started making feature films around the time or a couple of years, maybe before me. And um, and I'd met Danny a few times and I liked his films and I liked him a lot. He's an exceptionally nice and generous man um, and encouraging to people coming up, you know. Um, so, and he was, he sort of kind of hopped between genres and there was a sort of thing at that stage where it wasn't as bad it was it wasn't as bad maybe and there was a little bit of a reaction against auteurs that auteurs had had a lot of power and there was a feeling that maybe the film industry hadn't benefited from it at that stage so there was some sort of reaction against that and also I think because very little had been made in Ireland there was a sort of sense, it was, a, it was kind of a little bit of pioneer spirit, you know, where you could say, well, shall I dig in that field or shall I dig in that one over there? You know, there was a, there was a lot of space, you know, the, nobody done a romantic comedy, nobody done a horror, nobody done a noir thriller, nobody done, you know, there was a sort of sense it was quite narrow in some way. Um, and, you know, maybe there was a you know, that might lead to, it's like you've walked into the sweet shop in a way, you know what I mean? That you you, you want to stretch your, your yourself into all the spaces that are there. Um, so, and it's a good thing in, in ways, but it may be you're, you know, you're right in a sense. I think 
you know, definitely for part of the career, there was a sort of maybe the handle that's easier for people to get a grip on to say, OK, I know what he does or I know what where he's, you know, what he can be. Um, I probably underestimated the value of that and, and why it's needed. In some ways, it, it felt quite inhibiting, that idea, and something slightly false about it. Um, so I was interested to spread beyond that. But, uh, you know, there's an element of that that's uh, maybe I was a slow developer, so I needed to experiment or try different things. Um, and I can see why there's a value to have a coherent sense of where your career is going, that it's it can be followed and you're known in mm -hmm. a way. And I suppose, you know, in some ways, maybe, you know, all audiences, you know, there's a certain loyalty maybe in a lot of audiences. So say if you make a horror film, the horror, particularly horror, it's yeah. a very loyal audience. So even if you make a bad horror film, they, you know, they'll support you. And maybe it's some, to some extent, it's true of other genres as well, including drama, including art house, that there's a certain loyalty. Um, and maybe I didn't quite, you know, appreciate that as much for a while, you know? Yeah. And at that time, um, because there weren't Irish films being made for a long time, there seemed to have been a, a hunger, certainly... If you got a film made, it would screen at a festival. You definitely, all the festivals would want it. Um, but was there a difference then with Irish audiences? Because we kind of have this thing in Ireland that we we think that Irish people only, like, are, they're not that keen to go see Irish films, say, as French people would. What What's your experience with Irish audiences? Well, there definitely was a thing of, you know... Um you know, you know, this, the, the sort of not, not bad for an Irish band sort of thing that you two used to, you know, just before you two people used to say about Irish bands, oh, they're not bad for an Irish band, you know, and they'd actually say that, you know. And there was something, a feeling that they, you know, there was something a bit inferior or that you were going to be disappointed. And maybe there was a lot of times that that was the case, you know, um, partially... You know, if if we saw every French film, we'd probably feel this. You know what I mean? But you aren't. We only see the selection. You know, so maybe there's an aspect that you, you know, it's it it's not filtered, let's say, or wasn't filtered enough. So you're seeing loads of things that the the good things and the bad things and in between. And also the the place was, um, you know, the, there was a sort of development of language and a development of of knowledge here. And I don't mean just in terms of directors or writers. I mean, in craft, right across the board, you know, the the, the people were were learning on the job and they were learning quite quickly. Um, so and that began, I think, a little bit later to pay off. You began to feel when there was a certain um, body of experience that was coming um, and that you could, you know, more people who had had international experience as well were coming and uh, um, they were sorry, were working in international experience and were able to bring that back into Irish films. I mean, I think as well, going to international festivals was part of that, where you look at a film and 
you see, okay, there's films from 80 countries here and here's my one and why would they watch this or what is, why are they interested in this, you know? Um, to some extent, you know, there's a bit of curiosity, you know, to see what comes out of Ireland or what's that country got to offer. But that's not enough. You know, what is it that they responded to in my in my film? Was I clear enough in in being able to communicate uh, what I did, but also clear enough be able to communicate it, but also to do it in a way that had subtlety or nuance that made it interesting. Um, so I think those things took a, take a while to learn a little bit, you know, and you bring them back home as well. I think there was a little bit, um, sorry, these conversations are funny because you're trying to remember and remember what you thought at different yeah. stages and you're piecing it together. I think one of the things, I think there was a lack of ambition as well. Um, and, you know, so there was hunger, but I don't know if there was a huge amount of ambition to, to, to stretch, let's say. Mm. And that began to come, I suppose, with some experience. Um, and you could see that ar- around where a group of people who started around, around the same time began to stretch out a little bit more, you know. Damien O'Donnell, you know, like, you know, making East is East, you know, and, and how well that did internationally and in Britain and all that was a huge jump forward, you know. Yeah. It's, you know, debut feature by an Irish filmmaker. Um, in a way, it's kind of remarkable that more hasn't been made of it, you know, because that he hit the ceiling with that, you know. Yeah. Um, and But Damien had a, you know, he was precise and, and had a, sorry, was, is, he, you know, great precision, great sense of what it was he wanted to do, but had an ambition to, to make it good enough that it could travel anywhere, you know. Yeah, that, that only began to come. It wasn't there initially. Yeah, and did that kind of paved the way for you and other Irish filmmakers to go to UK and other places. Well, I would I would have been there around the same time as Damien. So, for example, I did um, uh, like I'd done Elsa and I went down, and then uh, Damien at that stage was doing uh, you know, and Kieran J. Walsh and other other people were doing, you know, had done some short films and. Um, and I think I made blow dry, uh, just maybe just a little bit after, or just around the same time mm. that I mean, was doing East is East because we, we were both in based in London for a while. Um, and so, yeah. And, and they were both, I don't know, it was East is East and Miramax. I think maybe Miramax bought it or subsequently Damien worked with Miramax, uh, so that we were both kind of got on the radar, let's say, at that stage. You know, Ailsa had been a bit, and then uh, I went down, definitely was on the radar of those kind of Fox searchlight and, um, uh, or Fine Line and, uh, and, and Miramax and all those sort of companies, you know? Yeah. Is that a bit of a difference? You don't really get the sense at the moment that, like, say, America are, are really looking as outwardly are looking to, you know, you kind of got the sense in the 90s and the 2000s that there was, and maybe to the detriment of the film industry that we were going after those kind of deals too too much. Do you think it's different now? Um, I think they're still looking at talent. Um, They're definitely, you know, interested in in talent and they're, you know, and I think more Irish talent is, uh, you know, now is engaged with the States, you know, in terms of, 
you know, uh, like the Lee Cronin and all, you know, all of that generation, you know, they, they're in, they have interest in the States in their work. Um, whether it's, there is a difference in, you know, in that time, the sort of 90s, you know, there was a heyday of kind of independent cinema and there was a market for, you know, you showed your film in Cannes and there was a, you know, interest in it. Is this the next thing, you know, and they and they would pay significant amounts of money for a film. So th- that that has evaporated a bit, you know. I think that's that isn't quite there as much. But I think, like, when, you know, when, say... I went down happened it was you know you'd get a sort of thing where there was one film or a filmmaker who suddenly was the next white hope or you know great white hope or whatever it was and um, then there wouldn't be anything for a few years and then you know Damien would be there or or John Carney came along or whatever it was and um, but now I think it's fairly every year there's like two or three for films or filmmakers who kind of make an impact and it's known. So in one, in some ways that sort of, that heyday isn't, doesn't seem to be there, but there seems to be a lot more penetration from the filmmakers into things like, you know, this year, um, you know, NASA Hardy man, you know, there's every year there's one or two filmmakers, either ones we already no, or else people making their debut features, but they're sort of fairly consistently making some sort of impact, you know. I don't know whether this, the money is the same in the sense where there was a market there and that doesn't seem to be there in the same sense, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, just go further back. What made you want to direct in the first place? Um, it, it's sort of slightly... Um, probably always had a sense of, you know, wanting to tell stories or wanting to, maybe even beyond tell stories, wanting to share in an emotion with people, you know, whether that be in a song or playing in a band or some type of project that was a, a pr- some form of presentation to people, you know. Yeah. So I, I, I would have had that throughout my secondary school or whatever would have felt that but I didn't particularly tag it to directing and then um, when I was in college I had a chance uh, one of my uh, college friends was a filmmaker called Frank Stapleton um, uh, and he made a sort of docudrama about uh, Ronald Reagan's visit to Ireland in what was it 1984, 83, I can't remember when he was at. Yeah. And um, so, and I got... Ali Poreen, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I got involved just as a kind of production assistant or helping him out or whatever. And I sort of was interested in, in that experience. And then when I left college, I did a work experience thing with a German animator and uh, called Gunter Wolf. And Gunter was very bohemian and gave me a lot of responsibility quite quickly and I probably thought I was going to end up in some production capacity but while I was there I began to just increasingly think more like a director and began to you know and I had immersed myself more in cinema and was watching films and just began to think that way so in a way it wasn't a decision it was sort of like a gradual shift into that um 
I think I could say as well, I remember coming home from school one afternoon, I was probably like 16 or something, and I, I watched a film in the afternoon on ITV. You know, TV stations used to have quite good films sometimes in the afternoon, classic films. Yeah. But it was um, Pressburger, Powell and Pressburger's A Matter of Life and Death, you know, which is a fantastic film. And I remember watching it. And as I was watching it, I just said, there's something about this film that feels different. I'm intrigued. And like it was, a you know, com- had a commercial aspect. It was a love story. There was all that. But yet the filmmaking somehow said something to me. And I didn't quite understand that this is was cinema in a different sense than just a film. Uh, but it was drawing me in. And I remember I began to look at films slightly differently after that, you know. And it's that time in life where, you know, where you're, yeah, you're interested and you're opening up or whatever. You know? Yeah. And what thread do you see kind of looking at your career in terms of what kind of stories you're attracted to? Um, I think, um, I think it's funny as much as stories, I think it's, it's a sort of sensibility around a particular emotion or a character in a certain situation, you know? And I think there's probably some little aspect of, um, in a, I'm not saying in all of them, but in a lot of them, of some sort of exclusion or some sort of self-exclusion even in some of them, um, where um, there's some sense of want, wanting to connect in the characters in a way or wanting to be some place that isn't on the periphery. You know, that's, I think that's something in a lot of them, you know. Um, I think, the, you know, the first couple definitely had that in relation to, to men. But I don't think it's a particularly, uh, I don't think it's a particular thing about male exclusion or something like that. I think it's more, um, it, it's more general in, in that sense. So I think that's in them. Um, I think in a funny way, I suppose it's, it's, there's an element that you take the story and you try to, in some way, channel that through a way of thinking and a way of grounding the thing. And it's, it's almost, rather than the, the thematic concern, it's almost a, something structural in, in how you do it. That is interesting, you know. So, in other words, I'm look. I read a story, and it's almost like I can feel that being able being able to put a shape on that thing in some way, you know. So it's 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 you know. I suppose something like Rosie, which um, you know overtly um, is about um, you know family trying to find a home. But for me, it's a film about faith. You know, can you can you have faith in tomorrow? What gives you the energy or the possibility to move forward with any sort of conviction or belief? In, you know, and 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 obviously in Rosie, it's about having a platform and a place 
to operate and get perspective from so that you can move forward positively in life, you know. But so it's that sort of thing to to where there's a, a story and then there's a sort of way to find what is that slightly more fundamental aspect that is in some way thematic, but it's also emotional. Mm. That makes a lot of sense when you talk about Rosie in that way. There's quite, I, I really was struck by, there's quite a light touch in the making of the film. And it must have been, that must have been incredibly hard when it was such an emotional kind of a, a story and we're kind of we're especially at that time particularly just where everyone seemed to be immersed in it how did you approach that um well there's a couple i suppose in terms of the lightness um you know that's one of the things i've always felt that you know trying to uh, trying to find a lightness and a life um that you feel that it what you're trying to create is a moment that is becoming or happening, you know, that isn't um, a, a reconstruction of something that you have in your head or a, or um, a presentation of an idea in the forefront of something. It's it's something where you want to present something that feels like it's a life and alive and light. And that's a bit about atmosphere. Um, it's a bit about a, a style of shooting and a kind of knowledge of how to, when to intervene, when not to intervene, um, having a kind of looseness that you can follow something and trust in some of the people you work with, um, that you can let them follow something sometimes um, and go with something if it feels that it's there's an energy there, it's an emerging. I think it's a bit but not letting anything become stale, <clears throat> not letting it be about perfecting a shot or perfecting a moment. It's about capturing the perfection, I suppose, is the feeling of lightness. And it's about capturing that feeling of something is alive or something feels like it's fresh or something, you know? I mean, obviously it's it's an illusion and, you know, all of that, but it's a way to present that illusion in a, in a way that's captivating, I suppose. Um, and there's a bit of an adrenaline and excitement around that, um, that it isn't as much about a stop-start thing. It's about in some way similar to playing uh, a sport or playing a song. It, it's something that's it's happening at this moment in this way now, and you want to, uh, to capture that. So you have, to, you have to allow for it to happen in a way that's loose, and also you have to be able to capture it in that way. But at the same time, um, I kind of tend to do a lot of prep into the context in which that will happen, you know. So say, for example, you know, so in other words, in, in your design or in your shooting, um, what you shoot, it's not that it's just recording a moment. You're you've positioned things in the frame or in the way you're shooting the frame or in the way a scene is set up that give gives a structural cohesion throughout the film. So like something like Rosie, you know, and you, you never want anybody to see these things or be aware of the thing when they're watching it. And sometimes it's trite or reductive to sort of, 
think that people will say, okay, that's part of an equation that means this. Now, I've done an equation, but the equation is really gives it shape and gives a feeling of coherence. Um, it's not intended to give direct symbols or signifiers that you expect people to to understand the film in terms of that. So say, for example, you know, in, in Rosie, there's, you know, a play between blue and yellow in the film, you know, and yellow is the colour of shame. So any moment that there's a shame is attached to a character or there's a, a play on shame because the central character, Rosie, that's... She, you know, she felt shame as a child and now this shame is revisiting her and possibly revisiting her children. And she doesn't want to be, have to transfer that shame onto them, but she feels it's happening. So it's a loss of control maybe and a feeling of um, disempowerment that she's feeling with that. And then the blue is a sort of, is about, um, I suppose, a surrounding pressure, a kind of, um, increasing pressure. So, you know, it's under their feet in the schools and the floors and gradually, you know, it goes up the walls in a few scenes and towards the end, it's over their head. So it's almost an enveloping sort of thing. Now, so when I, it's, you, you put structures in so that it feels like the shapes and patterns of coherence and the feelings then within the film, I think, let people f find shapes in their feelings and how they find the meanings within the film, because it's almost you've given some architecture around it. So it's not that you want them to feel this particular thing, but you want to be able to um, allow them to draw feelings at particular times and uh, that they feel it's a, that there's some coherent line, let's say, within that. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it's, it's really, I've never heard a director kind of, to talk about it in that way it's very insightful and how in in that kind of uh area how, how do you approach the working with the actors in with that in mind well with i t what i i learned a lot when i did viva actually um uh i actually before viva i had done um in my those fallow years, um, I had done some commercials, and there was a particular set of commercials um, that were for Denny sausages or Denny bacon and sausages or whatever. I mean. And um, they were called, uh, I think, the series of commercials called Home, and they were sort of part of a genre of commercials that real people commercials. So, in other words, you cast real people or you shoot a real situation, and you sort of let's say you you um, reverse engineer the story in in some way or you you have your themes as much as anything and you try and find moments that are resonant of those themes and then afterwards you know because you're shot, shooting documentary style so afterwards you've got a, a lot of material and then you construct that you know uh, but so, for example, you know, we sh shot a wedding, we shot a kid on Christmas morning coming down to see their presents, um, you know, first day at school, um, things that were, you know, unique moments, maybe, you know. And I began to learn how, you know, how not to intervene almost, when to choose to intervene or do something and also how to set yourself up in a way 
that a moment that you anticipate might happen, where should you be in that moment to capture that? And um, uh, so there was a certain, I'd say, kind of, again, that idea of learning how to capture rather than perfect, you know. So, you know, rather than getting the perfect uh, coin toss, you know, that's majestic and fluid and all that, you're not trying to do that. You're trying to find some other element. If somebody's tossing a coin, you're, you say, okay, well, we're not going to get the perfect coin toss. And if we go for the close-ups, it'll feel like a, you've cut away to a bunch of bananas. You know, the, what you need to do is find uh, the reaction to it or find some other thing that tells the story of that moment and in a way that feels coherent with the naturalism that you're you're trying to capture. So... I did that, and then when I went to uh, to do um, Viva, which was very tightly scripted, and you know, a really great script with dialogue that's very precise and kind of muscular drama. But I wanted to try and bring some of that atmosphere and lightness um, to that, um, and I was doing that obviously in Spanish, which isn't. Um, you know, at the time I had a smattering, you know, but it was, yeah, <laughs> there was an element of that in, in a sense that I was, I suppose I was, you know, I crammed a bit like, you know, you're doing the leaving cert or something. Yeah. Like I had to cram to get to a stage where I felt I was, I was fluent enough around the language in the script, you know, so I had gone through the process of the translations and then tested the translations, went through the translations with some actors, some other writers. So I actually almost had ingested the script both in English and in Spanish by going through that process. So in other words, you say, this is a joke. Does it translate? This means this. What does it mean in Spanish? And they'd give you have to explain in the nuance of it. So I knew the nuances of the language in relation to the script, but if I had to go off of that, it was sort of a bit ropier. Yeah. And so I kind of made a decision that I couldn't pretend to be fluent in directing it. I couldn't pretend in that way. So what I had to do is make my points and be very clear in advance and not to get lost in too much nuance. And But in doing it, what I discovered was that, you know, and this is, uh, when you've good actors, this is easy. It's, you know, the issue would be when the actors aren't good actors mm. or are mediocre actors, um, it becomes hard. Non-actors in some way are easy because you want them for who they are. So that's not difficult. Good actors are, you know, have 30 gears, you know, whatever. So they're, you can, you know, they, and they are intuitive. So as soon as you begin to discuss something, they generally know it before you finished what you're saying and they get it. But with mediocre actors, you kind of have to get the screwdriver out and you have to reconstruct them a bit. And that's where it's difficult if you, do, if you don't have your first language. Um, so with this, with, with um, Hector, who played Jesus, and Jorge Perugaria, who, who played the father, they are really good, like Cuba's great acting talent. And... I spent just maybe a week with them. And as much as we didn't rehearse in the sense that, you know, maybe a little bit, but 
we didn't go all out, um, you know, you know, sort of 100%. We kind of held back and really just discussing the moments, discussing the characters, talking around them. So in, in a way, you have touchstone feelings. And even you're talking about yourself or talking about things you, you've observed and ways of attaching colours to moments that you can share in a conversation. And then when they came to perform, you know, kind of 90% of the time, you're very close. Um, I learned that a huge amount of how you um, observe something or, or take something in is aural and visual. You know, it, it's, you know, the tone of the voice and the expressions, you sort of zoom in on that a bit more. And then if there's something specific that you need to clarify, I get an interpreter and just be very specific about that. But otherwise, I try not to speak through an interpreter because even in my broken Spanish, they will read what it is I'm emotionally trying to say or get at, you know, and they will, even if it causes a bit of confusion, you can clarify it, but the they're getting energy, you know, they're getting conviction and energy, and that's you ha- that has to be direct in some way. So I learned not maybe not to say as much and to be more precise about what it was I was saying, you know. Yeah. So, so not as not huge amounts of rehearsal, more yeah. about discussing and understanding what's going on, you know. Yeah. Um, we had Carl Waters. Oh, yeah. before and we kind of discussed this I, 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 Viva was very much a landmark for Irish filmmaking I just I just loved the boldness of it and it kind of redefined what makes an Irish film it must have been a bit scary at the same time oh it was, it was, it was very like but you know that's part of the thing you know the, you know the, it was a story that I thought of you know a long long time ago and and you know, almost oh, in the early 2000s and then um, began to work with Mark on it. And then Mark took it and ingested it and came back out with, a, a, you know, a different version of that, you know. Um, and But there was an ambition, I think, that was there to, to um, make something because of a feeling that I had got. I'd gone to a couple of drag shows in, in Havana and... Uh, there was just a very strong feeling that I got from some of this, the, the shows and, and some of the music in particular. And, um, and Mark understood that uh, very immediately as well. And um, I think once you get onto something like that, there's an, an adventure about it and a sense of adventure. And that's, there's an exhilaration in that. But it comes with trepidation, definitely. I mean, there's a few points where I said, Jesus, you know, what if, if this goes wrong, it could go badly wrong, you know? Um, but having said that, I sort of had a very strong sense of the emotions around the characters in particular moments. And I knew where I was going to with those things. So I knew, you know, I had a strong sense of it. But like, it's like any film. If I didn't get Jorge Perugaria, you know, yeah. um, if you don't have, if I didn't get Hector, you know, it could become a, a much paler version of it, you know, yeah. whereas, you know, great performers like them, 
are the things that elevate the film and, and reach a higher level. Like I, you know, Luis Alberto Garcia, who plays the character Mama, you know, I'd seen a lot of other actors and they weren't great and they were they were camping it up and it was sort of, um, you know, definitely ersatz kind of drag queen thing about them. And, uh, and uh, then the casting director said she could get Luis Alberto to read, you know, and uh, which was great. And I came in for the reading and uh, he was he was going to perform a song. He wasn't going to read a scene. He just wanted to perform a song. And I was watching him and he was psyching himself up. And it was like, you know, he was really psyching himself up to get into it. And even before he did it, I just said, this is who I want because he's he's going for he's not giving me a surface. He's going to, in here, you know, and um, and he did it and he was brilliant. But without them, you know, it's very quick, even whatever you want, your own ambition or your view of it or what you think it can be. Yeah. It becomes very ordinary without the brilliance of great performers, you know. Yeah. And you touched on it there with working with writers. As a director, how much involvement do you have in development? I mean, I know Viva that was kinda of, came from you and then you worked with a writer, but in terms of giving notes, what's your philosophy there? Yeah, I'd be very involved. Um I've been very lucky to work with some really good writers, you know, and um, and I suppose very lucky that even early on when I was working my first short film and, and Ailsa were written by Joseph O'Connor and Joe was a friend, he was in college. So I was able to maybe ha have a conversation quite early on and begin to, you know, I was, I was talking to a friend. So... And that become, changes the situation uh, very quickly, you know. Um, and then Connor, um, you know, it's, Connor is like one of the most gifted writers of the generation, you know, and you sort of I, I, I work with him very early on, you know. Um, so uh, I've been very lucky, but I think with all of them, and I, I get involved but with all of them, it's an aspect of, um, I tend to, this is the way I say it, they may all, maybe, maybe they sort of poo-poo me and say no, but I, what I view it is that you try to put the thing between the two of you, you know, so you give it its own independence between the two of you when you're discussing it. Um, I've learned, you know, maybe early on I used to try and sh push an idea or shoehorn an idea or whatever. And I've just kind of learned that that's futile and pointless, um, that it's you need to put the things into the middle and assess them and discuss them in the round and find where the energy is and get rid of the idea. Oh, this is my idea and this is what I want to do. And that sort of proprietorial thing, you've got to put it in the middle and that you share it and you own it between the two of you. You know, when I say that, I mean... Obviously, I'm, you know, I write sometimes and I've, you know, but when I'm working with Mark or I'm working with Connor or working with Roddy, they're writing it. You know, they're the writers. I'm not writing it. I'm helping shape it. I'm um, helping edit it, but I'm not doing their thing. And likewise, they're not doing my thing. And uh, but 
I feel there's a transference between the two. And um, generally, they're very generous and allow me a space to engage in the thing. And increasingly, I like to have them if they're around. There's nothing better for me than to have the writer with you and be able to turn around and say, what do you think of that? Is that a bit, is that good? I think it's a bit shit. I don't think it's quite right. I've got to do something with that. Or, you know, that you have a confidant close by and that you can in, engage in that as well, you know? So it, it, it is, it's a conversation and it's a discourse and dialogue and it's about, as in anything, about how you set that up and the quality of that. And the, the better the quality of that and the process, the better the outcome, you know? And I've been lucky to work with people who engage in that and who've probably given me the time to learn how to become more nuanced and sophisticated in the way that I communicate an idea, hopefully. Um, and you mentioned the fallow years. How do you deal with those frustrating decisions that might go against you or the years where, you, where you're not working? How do you deal with them? Um. I mean, that that time wasn't too bad because, you know, just personal things were, you know, I got married, moved house, was, you know, having children or whatever, you know. So there's other things take on and, you know, there's the immediate concerns of can you make a living and how do you make a living? And, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, people can be hard on the choices that people make and sometimes you've got to make choices because you need to earn a living, you know, and that's that's a very basic need that everyone has. I think, in a way, not not making a film. Let's say when when I made um, Red Mist and you know, AKA Freak Dog, um, I was. I remember in the middle of the shoot, I kind of I kind of got involved in that because a director had been lined up to do it, and he the film got delayed by a month or something and his wife was due to have a baby and he had to be in Canada and he couldn't do it. So he dropped out. It was, you know, low budget horror and he dropped out. And, um, I was asked quite late. It was already cast. A lot of locations were chosen. So I was asked quite late and I knew the producer and I liked the producer. Um, so I did it. And at the time I think I was buying a house and I needed that last bit of money to get the house. So, but halfway through the film, I remember shooting a scene and there was a sort of violence in it. And uh, I remember just saying to myself, why am I doing this? I don't uh, I don't believe in this. Somebody's head was getting smashed in a car or something like that. And I just, you know, I just said, why am I doing this? And it was a bit of a moment where I said, I, I'm not going to waste my time doing something that I don't want to do. So in a way, having a fallow time with where you've got projects that you have some ambition and hope that will happen is is better in a way than making something that you don't believe in. I think that's it's harder making something that you don't have any conviction in or belief in or that it's been a bad experience. I think that's a much harder place to go to than having a fallow period, as long as you're earning money, whatever, and being able to live. Yeah. You know? um, if you could give advice to the young you who was starting out as a filmmaker, what might that be? Um, gee, well, it's different, you know, if it was when I was back then, if you could, you know, um, I think 
think it's a very important to, you know, I, I this is sometimes you have a tendency not to place a value on certain things that you have, you know, and, uh, and maybe there's a part of an Irish inherited uh, psyche there as well, Some, you know, and I think you've got to have, you know, place value in your convictions and um, and have the confidence in that. And maybe it was a little bit of a few times where I mightn't have, you know, in some way or, you know, mightn't have placed as much value on some things as other people might have been placing on them. You know, I might have been slightly dismissive. And I think that's something, but that's a personal thing. It's not a... You know, that's not it's not a general advice to young filmmakers or something. It was just something that I, I think I probably was aware of my, myself. Um, I think maybe to dig into things a little bit earlier, you know, like I remember going to into a meeting in the States, you know, in a, in a sort of company that made comedies and... Uh, you know, I think they'd seen Man About Dog or something, and they said to me, you, you know, we we really like the film and we feel that you are, would be good at doing character comedies and action comedies. And we also make, and they listed off like five other different types of comedies. And, and it suddenly occurred to me, oh, right, I, I would have just said I made comedies, you know? And that sort of precision of language to know exactly where you are and how you're being perceived. And I think that's, maybe it's something, and I think there's a role for, you know, in Ireland, there's definitely a role for, the, I think, the film board or Screen Ireland, where maybe it's less so, and younger filmmakers might have a different experience. So I, I don't know, but I, I sort of feel a kind of, a knowledge of how to manage a career and and how to have a way of being precise about where you are in in what you're doing and how it's perceived good or bad and being able to use that information and debriefing from films to push yourself on a little bit quicker you know um i think that's something that i wish i was a little bit more like i was aware of things but i think in some way if you're if you're in a country that has more received wisdom or has a stronger agent system or has bigger uh, anchor tenants or players like bbc or uh, film four who want a stable of people you know um that's something that um uh, lets you kind of get that clarity let's say a little bit earlier Whereas I wasn't as aware of that and maybe not as aware of the opportunities. Like, say, BBC Films put money into I Went Down. And shortly afterwards, they sent me a script based on a Patricia Highsmith novel, which was a good script and it was a good novel. And I probably didn't realise that, the you know, I was spoiled because it just came off of a Conor McPherson script, which is great, you know. And I... It was a good script, but I probably was looking for something that was a brilliant script. And I didn't realize that there aren't that many brilliant scripts. And it's your job to try and turn it into that or something like that, you know. Mm -hmm. And and so I didn't do it. But in retrospect, you know, developing that relationship with 
great producer like Mark Chivas, who was there at the time, I probably didn't place enough value on it. And I wasn't aware of in them sending me the script, what value they were placing on me, mm. you know, and I maybe didn't take some of those things as seriously as I could have done, you know, but I'm not, I know. Yeah. Well, no massive regrets. <laughs> um, what's next? Um, well, I'm, I'm working, what I think is going to be next. Um, I'm working with Connor McPherson on an adaptation of a book called Sal, which is set in Scotland. And it's about two uh, sisters who are early teens. And one of them um, is being abused by her mother's boyfriend. And there's a threat that that's going to, he's going to start abusing the younger sister as well. So the older sister takes things into her own hands in a, in a brilliant way um, to uh, escape from uh, a sort of fairly grim possibility. And it, it develops into an adventure in the, in the highlands of Scotland. And um, it's about, I suppose, the relationship between the two sisters and how they're under threat to be separated and how this adventure bonds them in a way that they can never be separated, even if they're physically separated, you know. Um, so it's it's good. It's it's very poignant and it's quite funny. Um, and I'm hoping, I was hoping to do it towards the end of this year, but that's obviously not, it's not going to happen. So maybe in spring or autumn of next year. So uh, it's it's good. It's good. It's great really excited about it um so that's there and then i'm beginning to work with roddy on something else and i'm working with marco halloran on something so they're the the three things you know Brilliant. but sal i think is first okay great um just one last question um just kind of your philosophy on how you lead on set as a director what sort of atmosphere do you like to create um I think, like, I, I like, I like to talk um, and I like to collaborate. So I like to have kind of, in particularly in prep, very in-depth um, conversations with key people and that you distill that down into, I suppose, very simple kind of rules or simple tenets that you're going to follow throughout the film so that you've a shared language between the core people. Um, so that when you come on set, um, it's what you're talking about is in, you, you've got codes that you can very quickly tell somebody and they understand what you're talking about or, you know, your buzzwords or whatever that you, you both understand. And um, it makes it sort of quite, I suppose, informal, quick, casual. Um, I like to... Um, I, you know, I suppose you want to have a set where there's a, a little bit of tension, you know, that there's a feeling that people are concentrating, but that it's a nice vibe, you know, that everybody's, you know, enjoying it and together in some way and doing it. Um, I also think some of that stuff about shooting a little bit free, you know, in Cuba, they, they call it, you know, shooting free. I think, you know, when you go, sometimes you go out and you go into a situation where, you know, like uh, 
you know, small crew and you just go follow an actor and you go down the street and you see what happens, you know, um, um, and or like say in Rosie, the school collection scenes were, school, you know, the shot in two days where there's four minutes where people are collecting their kids from school and it lasts for four minutes. So you shoot the scene around that and then might you do a few pickups and backfill it. But there's a certain adrenaline and excitement in the crew because they know it's now, it's happening now. And if we don't get it in the next four minutes, it's not going to happen. And that gives a great feeling around people. It's a bit of a buzz. And I think a few moments like that in the shoot is sort of energize people and give a sort of a baseline of excitement in some way in what you're doing. Uh, and I like to have that. Um, so the, the, both the last shoots have been very pleasant and very enjoyable, you know, and, and, uh, and, and I suppose maybe my first from Ailsa was tougher, you know, I was very exacting and a bit meticulous, meticulous and sitting on things and consequently probably, you know, I felt more pressure around it and didn't enjoy the process. And I remember after that very clearly saying, I'm going to enjoy the process from now on because if I'm going to be a filmmaker, I can't not enjoy the central moment of doing the thing. You know, I have to find a way to enjoy the experience. So collegial, you know, I suppose, yeah, yeah. you know, not too showy. Yeah. Uh, brilliant. I could chat to you all day, but uh, we better leave it there. Thanks so much. Patrick. Thanks, million. Well, hopefully I wasn't too rambling too much.